there's a sense among a growing number of so-called middle powers and developing countries that they don't have to be prisoners of great power competition or strategic competition. And in fact, there's a growing conviction that they can flip the script. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. In late August, BRICS held a much-anticipated summit in Pretoria. BRICS, of course, stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It is a significant grouping for the sheer size of the countries involved. BRICS account for 40% of the world's population and nearly one-third of global GDP. For many years, those five countries were the entirety of membership. But China, in particular, has been eager to expand the roster in part to serve as a counterweight to the West in general and G7 in particular. So at the BRICS summit in Pretoria, six new countries were added to the club. Argentina, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt. You would be correct in thinking that this is an odd grouping of countries. But as my guest today, Ali Wine, explains, the attractiveness of joining BRICS today outweighs the rivalries that some of these countries might have with each other. And that, he says, captures the zeitgeist of geopolitics today. Ali Wine is a senior analyst with the Eurasia Group's global macro geopolitics practice. He is the author of an excellent book that was published just last year called America's Great Power Opportunity. We kick off with a brief history of BRICS as a grouping before discussing the major implications of this BRICS expansion. As a reminder, if you're listening to me on Spotify, be sure to click the little bell in the upper right-hand corner of your screen to get notifications of new episodes as soon as they are published. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure that you are following the podcast, and getting new episodes as soon as they're released. Now, here is my conversation with Ali Wine of the Eurasia Group. Can you 
give listeners a brief history of BRICS as a concept? So the BRICS used to be the BRIC. So the economist Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs coined the term BRIC in 2001 in a famous 2001 report. And BRIC, of course, it stands for four countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Then in late 2010, largely as a result of China's advocacy, South Africa joined the grouping, and now we have the BRICS. So there are five countries in the BRICS. They've had annual summits, but I think it's fair to say, and because of the outcomes, I think that this interest was warranted. I think it's fair to say that this year's BRICS summit elicited far more interest around the world than any of the previous BRICS summits. Hence our conversation today. But just to kind of go back to this origin story. So an economist from Goldman Sachs invents the term, presumably because there are some commonalities between the potential for growth in those four countries at the turn of the millennium, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, which I guess if you can kind of squint, you can see it. And then they added South Africa later. Like, how did it go from this idea on a paper to an actual like grouping of countries that came together? It's a remarkable achievement. And when you think about the number of just on a daily basis, Think about how vast the marketplace of ideas is. Think of, on a daily basis, in mainstream commentary, how many new acronyms are coined, how many new turns of phrase are coined. And it's difficult to say why a particular term happens to gain traction and go viral. And I don't know that there's a self-evident explanation as to why this particular concatenation gained the traction that it did, but it clearly embodied some zeitgeist of the time. And it has, for all of the critiques that it has withstood, all of the analytical critiques that it has withstood over the years, it has endured, not only in our lexicon, but has evolved beyond a name. It's evolved into an actual construct. Now, of course, Jim O'Neill never intended to suggest, and he's had to push back against this notion that he intended the bricks to be a monolithic grouping or a wholly cohesive grouping. I certainly don't think he intended it in that way. From what I understand, he identified four countries at the time in 2001 that he believed over the coming decade would be important drivers of global growth. And so he was focusing on a core set of emerging markets. And I think that some individuals perhaps overinterpreted what he had in mind. So up until this year, are there any accomplishments or meaningful outcomes that have resulted from this BRICS grouping coming together under that BRICS rubric? The main tangible outcome to date, and I think one that is likely to grow in scope in the coming years, is the BRICS Bank, the development bank associate that exists under the auspices of the BRICS. It's a tangible accomplishment, and I think that with the recent expansion of the membership to now include six additional countries, I think that we should expect that the financing base for this bank will grow, that there will be more efforts to conduct trade in BRICS members, local or national currencies. But I would say that the more important accomplishment, as it were, it's actually less tangible. And sometimes you know, there is something to be said for intangible accomplishments. The fact that the BRICS have endured not only as an acronym, but have also morphed into a geopolitical construct, and the fact that, importantly, 
some 40 countries, I believe 42 countries in the run-up to this year's summit in Johannesburg, they either applied formally or informally expressed interest in joining. And when you have that level of interest, there's something in the water. And so what we see is that the BRICS, even though there are important internal divisions that we can talk about, I think the BRICS embodies a zeitgeist of the time. There's a sense among a growing number of so-called middle powers and developing countries that they don't have to be prisoners of great power competition or strategic competition. And in fact, there's a growing conviction that they can flip the script. And that is to say that they can, in some cases, as warrants, they can circumvent strategic competition or they can leverage strategic competition to their advantage. And so if the United States is courting you, if China is courting you, if Russia is courting you, that courtship enhances your freedom of foreign policy maneuver. It enhances your diplomatic standing. It enhances your economic standing. And so what we're seeing is, I think, a growing trend towards a more multipolar international system, a growing conviction on the part of a growing number of middle powers in developing countries that they have significant foreign policy agency. Now, I hasten to observe no one is saying, and I, w- I would be remiss if I were to suggest otherwise, no one is saying that the salience of, for example, strategic competition between the United States and China is diminishing. Quite to the contrary, that rivalry is only growing more important. No one is suggesting that acrimony between the United States and Russia is dissipating. Quite to the contrary. All I'm suggesting is that as important as strategic competition between Washington and Beijing is, as important as conflict between NATO and Russia is, if you view global geopolitics too narrowly through the aperture of strategic competition, you're going to be missing more and more. What's fascinating, as you just suggested, is that you know you have this grouping of countries, the BRICS, the I and the C, India and China, I mean, they have a border dispute and that's led to like bloodshed over the last couple of years. Yet, despite these like profound differences and the intense competition that exists between India and China, they are able to have this kind of like attractive power together for those kind of middle power governments and countries around the world. I saw the economists use this kind of funny turn of phrase. They call them like the swing votes in global politics. Yes. And just that to me, as you said, suggests like this kind of zeitgeist of geopolitics at the moment. Absolutely. And now I should say, you know, it's important to take stock of where the BRICS are, but also, and and to state what they are, but also to make clear, you know, what they are not. The BRICS have never been a cohesive geopolitical unit. And with the expansion, so now the BRICS plus encompasses 11 members. So it's an even more eclectic grouping, because keep in mind, the five founding members of the BRICS There were no countries from the Middle East represented in that grouping. We now have with this latest round of expansion, we now have a number of countries from the Middle East and North Africa. So the grouping is even more eclectic. And so some observers would argue that for that reason, it's arguably even less geopolitically coherent. If you look at the founding members, the rivalry between India and China is very real. It's been growing. And India and China, at least in the run-up to the summit, had conveyed different sentiments about expansion. So if I were sort of dividing the members, I would say that Russia and China were largely of one mind about expansion and how they wanted the BRICS to be perceived. And I think that Brazil 
India and South Africa were of a different mind. So what I mean, Russia and China, and I think especially China, they want the BRICS to become a more explicitly anti-US or anti-West countervailing bloc. Like the bizarro G7 sort of thing. Right. And I think that Brazil, India, and South Africa, they absolutely want to escape the strictures of strategic competition. They want to enhance their freedom of foreign policy maneuver, but they are very wary of having the BRICS being seen as explicitly anti-United States or anti-West. What they want to do is adopt a more pragmatic, issue-specific, kind of omnidirectional foreign policy orientation whereby they conduct business with Russia and China as they see fit, but not at the expense of their relationships with the United States and with the European Union. So there were differences and there remain differences between the, the members of the group. So no, it's not geopolitically coherent. And yet, it is telling that in this expanded grouping, you have some odd bedfellows who on a bilateral basis harbor very significant enduring distrust. So we've already talked a little bit about India and China, but take another dyad, take Iran and Saudi Arabia. The recently admitted countries, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Argentina, Ethiopia, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt. These are very odd groupings. Iran and Saudi Arabia, obviously longtime rivals. You have UAE and Egypt who are backing opposite sides in Sudan civil war. Right. You have like Argentina, a normal Western American ally. Then you have Ethiopia, strong US ally, also dealing with its own internal issues. It's a motley crew. It's a motley crew. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's important to render parallel judgments about this new grouping that they might seem to be in tension with one another, but I, I think that they both can be true, and I, I believe that they both are true. So Proposition 1, as, as we've said, you know, the BRICs are not geopolitically coherent, but Proposition 2 is the fact that despite their lack of geopolitical coherence, they nonetheless see value in participating in this forum is significant. And I think that going forward, when we think about which gatherings, which international institutions play an important role in setting the global agenda, whether it's the global security agenda, the global economic agenda, the global development agenda, so on and so forth, the G7, of course, plays a very important role. The G20 plays an important role. And I think that now the BRICS is really stepping into, stepping into the limelight with this round of expansion. And I think that going forward, what we are going to see is that the BRICS will coexist with the G7 and the G20 in playing an important role in shaping the global agenda. And I really think there are a number of trends that are coming together. I think we see a relative diminution in the influence of the West, you know, certainly vis-a-vis -vis where the West stood at the end of the Cold War after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. We see the intensification of strategic competition between the United States and China, we see, for the time being, basically the rupture in relations between the West and Russia. And again, we see that amidst growing geopolitical frictions, amidst various challenges to globalization, at least as it was conceptualized and implemented in the 1990s and 2000s, we see a growing number of middle powers and developing countries asserting their influence, exercising their agency, advancing their interests in a way that would have been difficult to imagine even a decade ago. And 
if you, again, without diminishing the importance of strategic competition, I think that viewing global politics principally through that aperture is going to leave out more and more as time passes. And it's important to say, I mentioned this a minute ago, the relative diminution of Western influence. What's important to note about middle powers, I think most developing countries, just because they have certain apprehensions about the conduct of the West doesn't mean that in some zero-sum fashion that they are intrinsically aligned with China or with Russia. I think quite the contrary. I think that many countries believe that there are certain aspects of their relationships with the United States that are more conducive to the advancement of their national interests. But in other respects, maybe cultivating relations with China is a good idea. And I think that similarly, the orientation of many of these countries, it's more pragmatic than ideological, especially now with a coronavirus pandemic. And think about the damage that that did to human development. Think about, in addition, the disruptions that Russian aggression against Ukraine dealt to global food and energy markets. So for many countries around the world, that were already struggling to lift up their middle classes at the turn of the decade, they're now dealing with the aftershocks of COVID-19. They're dealing with the enduring ramifications of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. They are desperately seeking trade. They're desperately seeking investment. They're desperately seeking infrastructure. And so in those more exigent circumstances, you're not going to pay as much attention to the ideological dispensation of great power interlocutors, you're going to pay attention in a much more pragmatic fashion to what they can offer you. And so I think it's important to note, and and with this BRICS grouping, most of the members of this expanded BRICS grouping are not explicitly anti-US or anti-West. It's just that they are not reflexively anti-China or anti-Russia either. They're just more pragmatic in their orientation. Well, can I just maybe push back on this idea, play the devil's advocate a little bit, that this new expanded BRICS will be able to implement or agree on anything meaningful approaching like collective action. Like it seems, for example, that the G7 works as a unit because the political cultures of the countries are similar, that there's like shared values and that they're because of these shared values and, and shared democratic principles these governments and countries are able to get together, negotiate outcome documents, and the outcomes that they agree upon have real like political weight. They are able to take action based upon them. But it's like hard for me to imagine this grouping coming together and agreeing on anything of like global significance that they're able to collectively work towards. I would completely agree with you, actually. And I think that just as a proof of concept of what you said, if you look at the swiftness with which the G7 imposed sanctions against Russia after Russia invaded Ukraine, I believe these are the most sweeping sanctions that have ever been imposed on an economy of Russia's size since World War II. So there's no question that the G7 countries, by virtue of, I think, significant ideological alignment, economic alignment, geopolitical alignment, they're able to act in a more coherent fashion. Whereas if you look at the BRICS, the BRICS are riven by internal divisions. The G20 is riven by internal divisions. And yet, I think that what we see, take, for example, the deepening alignment between China, Russia, and Iran. Now, if you were to ask me, what is the affirmative vision towards which China, Russia, and Iran are collectively striving, I would have a hard time coming up with an answer. 
And yet we worry about deepening alignment between China and Russia and Iran because shared grievances are at least as important a motor of action as shared aspirations. And so we worry about the extent to which China, Russia, and Iran, the extent to which their shared animus can lead them to undercut, for example, the actions of the G7 or to undercut the actions of the West. So I would look at the expansion of the BRICS within a broader aperture that includes the recent expansion of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to include Iran, to include this zeitgeist that I've now mentioned a few times, whereby you have more and more middle powers and developing countries asserting themselves, even if they don't act in cohesive ways, I would say that all of them are broadly united in wanting to reduce the centrality, for example, of the US dollar in global finance, in wanting to reduce the overall weight of the West in geopolitics. And so even if they aren't acting in a coordinated fashion, The expansion of certain organizations, the development of new organizations that are less centered around Western influence suggests that more and more countries are going to look for ways, even if they have disagreements with one another, that they are nonetheless going to look for fora in which they can undercut Western actions. And so all the way of saying that there are different ways for organizations and ad hoc groupings, at least two ways for them to exercise influence. You can exercise influence via shared aspirations. You can also exercise influence via shared grievances. And I think that what we're seeing with, you know, whether you look at the deepening relationship between China and Russia, whether you look at this expansion of the BRICS, whether you look at the expansion of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, what we're seeing is that the politics of resentment, I think, will prove at least as important in shaping geopolitics as the politics of aspiration. So... Your excellent book from last year makes a point that the U.S. foreign policy establishment should not view competition with China through like a zero-sum lens. However, that's how like a lot of U.S. foreign policy establishment does view it. In the week or so since the ending of this summit that resulted in extending BRICS to six more countries... Have you seen the U.S. foreign policy community kind of coalesce around the idea that BRICS expansion is like a net win for China and accordingly a net loss for the United States? I've seen conflicting views. I would say, I shouldn't say conflicting views. I I think I've seen sort of views that are held in parallel. And again, and and I think that they're broadly similar to the ones that I outlined a few minutes ago. Namely, I think that there's a broad recognition that the expansion of the BRICS is a diplomatic victory for China. In the run-up to the summit, there were many observers who were predicting that, at best, that the BRICS summit would agree on a vague explication of principles for admitting new members at some point in the undefined future. So many observers had very low expectations for what this summit would actually accomplish. I don't think that rapid expansion of the kind that we've seen was on the cards for many observers. China had been the most vocal proponent of expanding the BRICS in the run-up to the summit. And I believe there was at least one Chinese official, I I think quoted anonymously, but there was at least one Chinese official who in the run-up to the summit gave an interview to the Financial Times in conveying the sentiment that the BRICS might one day rival the G7 in economic weight. Now, we can get into a disagreement about whether it's more accurate to measure economic heft using purchasing power parity or at market exchange rates, but I'll leave aside that discussion for now. 
But certainly, I think one view among, I think, Western officials is that BRICS expansion is another diplomatic victory for China. And I say another because we saw earlier this year China's unveiling of its so-called 12-point peace plan for the Russia-Ukraine war, low on specifics, but nonetheless demonstrating China's interest in being seen as a constructive interlocutor. Of course, then you know China brokered a normalization agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And then, of course, China sent its special envoy for Eurasian affairs to the talks that were held recently in Saudi Arabia. So China is clearly trying to play a more active diplomatic role regionally and globally. And I think that the expansion of the BRICS is another feather in its diplomatic cap, as it were. But the other view that I think many Western officials have expressed is that, look, if anything, the expansion of the group further dilutes its geopolitical coherence. And as we've already talked about, and this expanded grouping, it embeds a number of bilateral rivalries. I don't get the sense that Western officials look upon the expansion of the BRICS with consternation, but they look upon it with vigilance. And you can't dismiss out of hand an expanded grouping that accounts now for a sizable portion of global economic output, a sizable portion of the world's population. And so, you know, my sense is that there's vigilance, not alarm. And here's kind of the open question. The extent to which the expansion of the BRICS is a harbinger of things to come. And that is to say, to the extent to which it kind of symbolizes or encapsulates or distills a new era of geopolitics in which we will see a more systemic erosion of the West's relative influence, in which we see a greater expansion of China's relative influence, in which we see potentially greater cohesion among middle powers, developing countries. But those are very much open questions as we speak. You know, there were about like, say, 40 or so countries that were like courting BRICS. Only six made it. Are there any like significant snubs of note that intrigued you in one way or another? I don't know if I would call it a snub, although I'm, I'm sure that Indonesia would beg to differ. But I was surprised by Indonesia's non-inclusion and Iran's inclusion. In the run-up to the summit, I think that many observers predicted that if the BRICS were to expand, that Saudi Arabia would be a likely candidate. And I think that you know many others also thought that Indonesia would be up there with Saudi Arabia. I mean, if you leave aside Iran, one of the main points of friction, especially between Russia and China on the one hand, and between Brazil, India, and South Africa on the other, was that Russia and China want the BRICS to become more of an explicitly anti-US or anti-West vehicle, whereas the other three founding members do not want it to evolve in that manner. And so of the six countries, I would say that with the exception of Iran, it's not clear to me that any of the other five self-evidently sort of anti-US or anti-China in its orientation. I think five of the six are quite pragmatic and omnidirectional in their orientation. And so Indonesia, I think, would have fit that bill. Iran is surprising, though. Indonesia has been trying very hard to balance its relationships with the United States and with China. And Indonesia also, because of its prodigious reserves of nickel, finds itself increasingly at, a, at the center of not only traditional security competition between the United States and China, but also green competition between the two countries. So Indonesia, I think, is more similar in its foreign policy orientation to the other five countries that were admitted. Iran, however, is not. Iran is much more similar in terms of the explicitness of its animus towards the United States and the West more broadly. Iran is much more similar to Russia and China. So I was surprised that Iran was included and 
that Indonesia was not. But otherwise, I would say the other five countries, I think that, again, by virtue of their more neutral or, or, or non-aligned foreign policy orientations, they didn't come as altogether too much of a surprise. Yeah, that Iran one is just shocking to me, too. I mean, I don't honestly know off the top of my head if Argentina and Iran have direct bilateral relations, given was like the bombing in Argentina. Right. In 1994. I mean, that's like a knowable question. I, I just don't know it. I'll, I'll have to fact check that afterwards. But it, again, it's just very interesting to me. Um, lastly, going forward, are there any like indicators you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how BRICS may evolve? Are there any like inflection points on the geopolitical calendar coming up that will like shape things one way or another? What are you looking towards that will sort of inform your view of whether or not this expanded BRICS grouping is a real political force or like a geopolitical nothing burger? There are a few trends to watch. So notably, contrary to some speculation, a quite abundant speculation prior to the summit, the BRICS founding members, they did not broach the subject of a common currency. They made very clear in South Africa as, as the host country made very clear that there would be no discussion of a so-called BRICS currency at the summit, but instead they would discuss how the countries could more actively trade using one another's national currencies. But you know, having you know, made that point, you know, so one not discrete signpost, but one sort of broader trend to be mindful of is the extent to which this expanded BRICS, the extent to which it becomes a laboratory of sorts, a geopolitical and geoeconomic laboratory of sorts for experimenting with various mechanisms for reducing Western influence. If we see more coordinated efforts by these countries to circumvent the US dollar, to circumvent SWIFT, to fashion arrangements that reduce the impact of Western sanctions and export controls. So one kind of broad category to be mindful of is the extent to which it becomes that kind of laboratory for thinking in a more granular way and not just in a kind of rhetorical or symbolic way about reducing Western influence, number one. Number two, of course, which countries, if any, are admitted in subsequent rounds of expansion? Russia is scheduled to host next year's summit. It'll be interesting to see, just given the really horrifying ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, I think that the geopolitics of that summit are going to be very dicey. But it'll be interesting to see in subsequent summits which countries are admitted. Are there any through lines that connect countries that are newly admitted to the BRICS? So another trend to watch for. We see that the United States, its allies and partners are trying to be more nimble in their multilateralism by experimenting with smaller issue-specific groupings that bring together like-minded countries. So it'll be interesting to see if, in parallel, we see efforts by middle powers in developing countries to establish and stitch together a comparable kind of latticework of ad hoc multilateral arrangements that give various combinations of these countries more opportunities to experiment with ways in which they can reduce Western influence in global geopolitics. So those are a few of the Again, none of them are sort of discrete inflection points, but they're broad trends of which I, I think we should be mindful to see whether, you know, whether the BRICS will prove in retrospect to be something of a geopolitical miss or whether we'll look back and look at this round of expansion as being a quite significant harbinger of things that ended up occurring. Thank you so much, Ali. That was great. My pleasure.
Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.